Habiba and I'll be your MC for this session. We'll start with Joey giving us a talk and then we'll have a Q&A with both Joey and Nikita afterwards. If you have questions, please do start to submit them on the Swapcard app and upvote your favorites. I'd now like to introduce our speaker, Joey. Joey is the co-founder and director of strategy at Charity Entrepreneurship. He's the founder, funder, and mentor for a number of early stage charities, including Charity Science and Charity Science Health. He's also one of the primary contributors to the handbook, How to Start a High Impact Nonprofit. And I'd like to welcome to the stage, Joey Savoy. Thank you. Hello. Uh, so we're going to talk about what it really takes to found a high impact charity. And we're going to start off with talking about saving a life. Uh, so obviously, saving a life is a very positive and admirable thing. Uh, there are not that many opportunities that most people get to save a life, uh, kind of walking around the world, not that many children drowning in ponds uh, on your everyday commute. Uh, but there are jobs that can give you the opportunity to save a life, you know, whether it's a job as a paramedic or something that's directly kind of saving lives, uh, or whether it's something a, a bit more aggressive or ambitious. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a career path that really can lead to huge amounts of lives being saved. So when we think about tens of thousands of lives saved, uh, say enough to fill up an entire stadium, uh, we typically think of superheroes, perhaps, uh, people who are saving that sort of lives, top research scientists, political activists who have had huge levels of success, uh, but also charity entrepreneurs. So someone like Rob Mather, who founded the Against Malaria Foundation, uh, has saved huge numbers of lives, uh, several hundred thousand. In the time I've been speaking so far, three lives have been saved by the Against Malaria Foundation. It's an incredible achievement, and he really is an impactful person in this world, uh, taking the career path of charity entrepreneurship. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the different factors of charity entrepreneurship and what sort of things uh, you might want to look at when considering the impact of this career path uh, versus other career paths. And I'm going to take a cluster approach, kind of coming at it from different angles, uh, both angles that are pretty familiar to the EA community and a couple that are a bit different. So first, let's talk about scale. So this is a picture that we took from some work we were doing with Charity Science Health for vaccinations uh, in a slum in uh, Lucknow, India. Uh, and you can tell from this picture that there's a lot of challenges here, a lot of economic challenges, a lot of health challenges. The vaccination rates uh, had major challenges, of course. Uh, what you can't tell is the scale of this slum. Uh, it took a huge team several hours uh, just to cover a portion of it. Uh, and it's really, really easy to forget the details of just how significant some of these challenges that we face are. Uh, of course, that was just one slum in the province of Uttar Pradesh, which is uh, practically the size of the United States. It has 300 million plus people. And there's huge challenges here, enough that several effective charities could work just in this space uh, and still have an incredible impact on the world. Of course, zooming out further, there's many different countries and many different cause areas. Ooh. There we go. Uh, many different cause areas, both areas that are kind of recognized by the EA movement as highly promising, you know, animals, existential risk and global poverty, and also areas that are extremely promising and still not deely investigated. You know, stuff like mental health or bio-risk cause areas that are up and coming. So there really is incredible potential to scale up a large number of highly impactful charitable organizations. Uh, and it's really not something that's on most people's radar. Uh, so unsurprisingly, if you think back to your childhood, probably relatively few of you thought that you wanted to grow up to be a charity entrepreneur. Um, it's not a career path that's on the beaten road. In fact, entrepreneurship itself isn't on the beaten road, and then charity entrepreneurship is uh, another deviation off that. Uh, so it can be a field of real neglect. 
even though there are kind of incredible people like Rob Mather who are really having profound impacts, it's not something that's immediately salient or not something that most people have thought about as a potential path. And there's also some misconceptions that stop a lot of people from considering themselves a good fit, which we'll get into. Um, if you're in this room, you could potentially be a very fantastic fit for charity entrepreneurship. So this is a picture from an EAG a couple years back, uh, 2018, and you can see a pretty large number of people who ended up going on to either work for early stage organizations or found early stage organizations. Uh, so the pool of effective altruists really can be a fantastic pool for people who end up founding uh, effective, impactful organizations. I want to talk a little bit about the flow through effects, because although the direct impacts of saving tens of thousands of lives through your charity are really great, I think that the flow through effects are also extremely significant, uh, potentially more significant. If you think about GiveWell as an organization, they've obviously had a massive impact in terms of directing hundreds of millions of dollars to top effective charities, but they've also affected the ecosystem. The entire culture of the charity world has changed a little bit because of GiveWell's charitable evaluations. When you think about the influence that GiveWell had on the EA movement, for example, or the influence that GiveWell has had on the poverty space in terms of bringing this analytical level of rigor, you think about the uh, kind of organizations that's inspired in terms of giving green on climate change or animal charity evaluators and animals, uh, GiveWell's flow-through effects are extremely significant in addition to its kind of primary impact. Similarly with charity entrepreneurship, there's a huge inspiration effect. There's a huge benefit of having a successful charity that can inspire others to go down the same path. Uh, so this is Nikita, who will be co-answering the, the Q&A with us. And uh, her journey in kind of working on Fortify Health was one of the big inspirations for why charity entrepreneurship got started, why charity entrepreneurship was able to do this. And many other people uh, got inspired from talking to top charities and kind of thinking about, hey, these, uh, these are working. You know, this is kind of proof in the pudding. It's one thing to, in the abstract, think that someone can found an impactful charity. It's a whole other thing to have seen it work by people in your community like you and it had success. So, Next, let's talk about counterfactuals. Uh, probably a lot of you have heard of uh, counterfactuals as a way of reasoning about careers. Uh, and of course, when you're thinking about the counterfactual impact of joining a job, it's uh, common to think about what your replacement is compared to the next best candidate. So maybe you're 10% better and the differential is 10%. You know, it's a lot more complicated if you get into the weeds of it, but there is a, a replacement factor for you getting a job. Now with entrepreneurship, uh, the opposite is true. So not only is it often founder limited where a charity wouldn't be started at all absent a really good co-founder, but there can even be flow through effects of you making pathways for more jobs, more staff, more resources, and more talent to be moved there. So it might even have a, a kind of a benefit of making more optionality for other people considering that similar career path who might not want to do the full entrepreneurial journey themselves, but once there's an established organization, a touch point that they can rally around will join that cause. So there's a whole whack ton of other benefits that I really uh, don't have time to go into, but there's a lot of things to do with long-term impact and career benefits. There's a lot of transitional people who start as charity founders and then move into foundations or other impactful roles. There's a lot of reasons to think that this could be a really fun and enjoyable career path if you're the right fit. You know, there's a lot of flexibility. Um, it's a hard job, there's a lot of hours, there's trade-offs too, but for the right personality, entrepreneurship can be one of the most enjoyable things as well as one of the most impactful things to do. So I want to talk about some of the challenges now because entrepreneurship is uh, not all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, you know, it's not that controversial that Rob Mather should do charity entrepreneurship, but that's a far cry from saying a huge number of people should do charity entrepreneurship or that you personally should do charity entrepreneurship. So one of the most common questions I get is, uh, you know, I want to found a charity, but I'm not Rob Mather. Uh, and that this is kind of sad. This is a realization all of us had to go through at one point that we're, that we're not Rob Mather. Uh, but uh, most of us have recovered. And the good thing is 
there's lots of successful charity entrepreneurs uh, who are also not Rob Mather, um, who are talented in all sorts of different ways. And, and we'll talk about kind of the common skill sets and the, and the reoccurring trends of what happens when you talk to dozens of effective charity founders and dozens of people who have founded projects. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, you don't have to be uh, Rob Mather, uh, a clone of him. Uh, even Rob Mather wasn't Rob Mather when he started the charity. He's gained a lot of expertise and, and a lot of tools along the path that has made him as talented as he is in that particular domain. Uh, so the next question that a lot of people ask is, uh, is it really hard? Isn't it really hard? Uh, yes, and there's just no way to sugarcoat that. Uh, it's a hard career path. Uh, most things worth doing uh, are hard. Uh, it is something that's going to push you to the edge of your abilities in all sorts of ways, both psychologically, you're going to get very attached to the project, and uh, skill-wise, you're going you're to have to do lots of things that uh, you're not very good at, lots of things where you have to skill up and, and learn quickly and kind of adapt to the situation. Uh, so it is very challenging, uh, but the good news about that is there is lots and lots of support. Uh, there's probably more support for charity entrepreneurship now uh, than there's ever been in the past, certainly in the EA movement, uh, and we'll get into those sort of supports and, and what's offered for you guys as well. Uh, the next question is about risk. Uh, charity entrepreneurship is a risky career, and again, there is some risk involved in entrepreneurship, uh, any sort of entrepreneurship, including charity entrepreneurship, but often the risks are a bit overstated. Uh, people are often imagining that their charities collapse, they're left uh, crying under a bridge with, with nothing uh, to, to, to build off of. But there's a lot of ways that uh, charities fail and that are, are very productive uh, for the world. So you know, if they fail but provide a lot of learning and information value, that can be incredibly beneficial. And if they, uh, uh, they fail uh, and give the founder uh, a bunch of skills that allow them to kind of progress into future careers or even found another charity, uh, if you're still excited to do that after a failure, uh, that can be incredibly impactful. Many of the best uh, entrepreneurs are serial entrepreneurs, uh, both when it comes to charities and for-profit. Uh, so there can be incredible learning experiences. Also, the percentages are uh, less significant than people think, at least for certain demographics. So when we look at folks who have applied and gone through our charity entrepreneurship program, uh, of say the 20 people who get in, about 75% of them will get funding to launch a charity. Uh, that's pretty good odds. It's not like you're applying for a long shot grant. And that's not even counting another 10% who get job offers immediately for an early stage charity if they decide not to found a charity. Uh, this is the whole pool too. So a lot of these people who end up not funding charity or not getting funding uh, pivot because they want to do a different career path or, or want to do something else that they find uh, a better personal fit. Um, the last thing that people are super concerned about is funding. Uh, and funding is very scary. Uh, you know, it, the idea of fundraising to earn your salary as opposed to just being guaranteed it from your employer uh, is intimidating. But there are uh, a lot of funders right now who are particularly interested in impactful projects. So if you do come into it with an effectiveness-orientated mindset and you do want to make the most impact and you are open-minded to kind of pivoting where the evidence leads, uh, there are funders in multiple cause areas who are kind of very excited to see uh, new projects in the space. Um, it's not that funding is guaranteed for every project, but it's typically not the bottlenecking factor for fantastic organizations uh, going to fruition. So, sorry, can't read it. Uh, what are the key traits of great charity founders? That's the next thing I want to get into. Um, basically talking about the characteristics that would make you uh, excited or would make you a clearly good fit for going down this career path. Because it is not for everyone. It probably is a minority career path. Uh, but it's a bigger minority than you might imagine. So we're going to uh, first uh, think about kind of uh, what typically people think about when they come to uh, think of characteristics that a charity founder might have. And some of these first thoughts are wrong. Uh, in fact, if I kind of asked you all to brainstorm and talk to each other about 
what characteristics um, a charity entrepreneur might need. These might be some of the things that will come up, and we'll talk about some of the other things. But there's major cons with these sort of uh, needs. So a lot of people think first about background. Uh, you know, do you need to be a malarial expert uh, to become Rob Mather? And now, Rob Mather certainly is a malaria expert now, uh, but he wasn't when he founded the charity. Often this background and this expertise and this getting very good at this specific cause area is acquired as you're working in the field. Even if you have something like a broad generalist background in global health, you're going to need to become a much more specific domain expert within that field. Uh, so background hasn't actually been the kind of unifying characteristic of uh, the, the founders that are good. Uh, having a background can speed you up a little bit, but it's certainly not necessary and, and not even that common amongst the strongest founders. Uh, another concern people have is age. You know, what if uh, I'm too old or too young? Uh, but again, we don't really see a pattern of this. We've seen fantastic charity entrepreneurs who are 55 plus and fantastic entrepreneurs who are in the early 20s. Uh, there's a really wide range, and uh, different age groups bring different pros and cons. You know, maybe a younger person has more career flexibility or personal flexibility. Maybe they have more interest in, in traveling to a country and living there for a period of time. Um, maybe they have more energy to do certain tasks. An older person often brings experience with them, brings connections, brings networks, that sort of thing. Um, every kind of age demographic has their own pros and cons, and of those pros and cons, uh, you can find good co-founder pairs as long as you find someone who balances those off. Um, the next one is personal experience. So this is a really common myth in the charity world, a little less common in the EA world, but thinking through the idea that uh, you need to experience something personally uh, to start a charity on it or to work on it as, as an area. But unfortunately, of course, this rules out almost all of the most important uh, areas. It, you won't necessarily experience the issue that's most cost-effective or most evidence-based uh, to go through. Uh, Rob Mather didn't go through malaria. That's not how he came to the, the idea. Uh, you know, it was about how impactful it was for other people. You have to have a good imagination. You have to be able to feel kind of the, the suffering that other people are going to go through and, and how that's going to feel. But going through it personally yourself is uh, not an essential requirement and probably not even common for many of the most impactful cause areas. Another thing that is uh, very common is the concerns about confidence and extroversion. Uh, so everyone imagines when they think of a charity entrepreneur, kind of a gregarious extrovert who makes friends at every party that he goes to and is, is a master networker. And there definitely are charity entrepreneurs who fit this profile. Rob is brilliant at this. Um, but there are also charity entrepreneurs who fit a different profile. There are introverted charity entrepreneurs. There are uh, quiet charity entrepreneurs. There are research-oriented charity entrepreneurs. Uh, often a co-founder team will have someone who's a bit more extroverted and a bit more socially interested and someone who's a bit more reserved, a bit more focused on the details, a bit more good at other aspects of the charitable organization. So I think that sometimes people get a little bit caught up in these stereotypes of what a charity entrepreneur needs to look like when really the range is a lot broader than that. Uh, and finally, network. Uh, so again, like the experience, the network comes with working in the field. Um, there's lots of heuristics for how to get in contact with key experts and key people, but one thing that really helps is actually doing something that matters in the relevant field. If you contact an expert who's published a paper that only 10 people in the world have read, and you contact them excitedly to have a call with them, they're very likely to say yes. Most of the experts really care about their area. That's why they become experts in it. And they're very excited to talk to other actors who are uh, wanting to learn. You have to come in modest and, and humble, but you don't need to have this massive network. Uh, it does build up as you kind of gain the expertise, gain the knowledge, end up talking to people in these different positions uh, as you kind of bring up your charitable organization as a whole. So if we kind of go through that and we think about what traits uh, actually really do matter, um, I want you to think about characteristics that are a bit more underlying. 
um, and we'll go through a few of these. Uh, these are traits that kind of unify a lot of entrepreneurs. In fact, I actually want you to take just a second and brainstorm it with your table, uh, characteristics that you think might make a really fantastic entrepreneur, um, now that I've knocked out some of the common ones that people come up with. So give me 30 seconds, here we go. Okay, perfect. I know 30 seconds is not nearly enough to figure out and derive all the characteristics uh, of a key charity entrepreneur, but I heard a couple of ones that we're going to talk about a little bit more. So some of you are on the right track. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of these characteristics and I'm going to give some examples from charitable organizations that have exemplified this characteristic in one way or another. So the first trait I want to talk about is irrepressibility. So this is basically uh, the idea that you bounce back from setbacks. It's kind of beyond resilience. It's about uh, even coming back with more energy, coming back with enthusiasm, coming back with some, some positive feelings uh, to challenges. Now, this is really, really important because unfortunately you're going to hit challenges. It, even if your charity is fantastic, there's going to be dark days, dark months, dark years even potentially, where things really feel challenging, where you're not sure if you're gonna have an impact, where you're not sure if it's gonna be successful. Um, so, you really have to have uh, yeah, this level of greediness and, and even irrepressibility even a step further. So a couple examples. Uh, I'm going to embarrass Nikita again because she's uh, here. So running a charity is tough. Running a charity when there's a COVID pandemic outbreak uh, in your country of operation is really, really tough. And this is the sort of setback that can kill a lot of organizations. It can slow down their operations. It can make them totally unable to function. And some charities uh, did fold during the outbreak. Um, but having the kind of uh, resilience to, to work through that and come back to the issue excited, trying to think about how to pivot around it to make the most impact that you could, uh, really leads you to a different level of, of charitable organization. Um, another example uh, is Haven from FWI, so Fish Welfare Initiative. Uh, Haven had to visit about half a dozen countries to really find out which would be the best country for FWI to conduct its intervention in. So he was going visiting farms, dozens of farms, even seeing pretty extreme levels of suffering uh, that were, were tricky. Um, but he had the enthusiasm to know that in the long term, uh, kind of witnessing this, this suffering or, or seeing these fish farms was really impactful and would eventually result in them working in the top country and, and having a huge impact. Uh, this sort of grittiness or, or irrepressibility is really, really important for founders. Uh, that's why it's trait number one. Before we go to trait number two, I want you to think about this exercise here uh, and come up with which one you think is the odd one out. Uh, so I'll give you three seconds to do that. Um, so uh, put up your hand if you thought it was A. Great, you are correct. Uh, A is the odd one out. It is the only one that has a straight line. Um, put up your hands if you thought it was B. Okay, you're also right. Uh, it's the only one that had a continuous circle. That's great. Uh, what about C? Uh, yeah, you're also correct. It's the only one that had asymmetrical uh, features. And uh, what about D? Anyone put that up? Fantastic. You obviously knew that it was the only one that's a projection of a Euclidean triangle in non-Euclidean space. <laughs> Very good. So uh, they all are right. Uh, now, I want you to ask yourself, now that you know that they're all right, uh, have you actually updated? 
or does one of these seem more right still? Um, it's an interesting question, but it's a good, good beginning of the conversation about open-mindedness. And I actually heard this mentioned by one of the tables uh, close by when people were talking about characteristics. This is super, super important. Um, there will be hundreds of decisions that your charitable organization has to make and constantly new information coming in. Part of the reason why the charitable world isn't as efficient as it is is because organizations are quite slow to update, they get stuck in their ways, and they can't move to do the most impactful thing. Uh, having this sort of open-mindedness can lead you to much higher levels of impact. So a couple examples from our field. Andreas started a shrimp welfare project, and he came into the, um, uh, he came into the incubation program basically as open-minded as you can be. He was excited about every cause area. He was excited about every co-founder. Um, he was very, very keen on just doing the most impact. That flexibility allowed him to find a really unique fit and might have resulted in a counterfactual charity existing that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Uh, that sort of flexibility is rare, really wanting to just do the most good. And it's a trait that's much more common in the effective altruism movement, but really rare in the broader world. Allows you to select cause areas based on pure impact instead of a passion thing. Uh, Kiki is another founder who went through our program recently. And she encountered a challenge where there were two charities that could massively benefit from her skills. Uh, this is a really tough challenge, and most people will kind of settle on uh, going, for, going for one or the other, or maybe splitting their time. But she was able to find a creative and unique solution where she was able to work for one during their key point and another for its key point to kind of maximize the impact across both. Uh, this only happened because she was able to consider a huge number of options when thinking about what the most impactful thing to do would be. So open-mindedness, incredibly important. Uh, next up, let's talk about competence. Uh, so the good news about competence is if you're in this room, you're probably in a highly competent uh, tier. So that's really exciting. Uh, you really are kind of in a well-resourced position to, to have some great impact for the world. Uh, but charity entrepreneurship is very requiring. It's hard work. Uh, there's a joke that charity entrepreneurship is great because you can pick your own hours uh, as long as it's all of them. Uh, and there is some truth to that. It, it's a pretty intense uh, job. And uh, it doesn't mean you do have to work all your hours. We'll talk about work-life balance in a bit. But uh, it does mean you have to be uh, very, very good and very, very dedicated to, to getting work done and to getting truly absurd amounts of work done. So uh, Lauren and Jack uh, both were founders who went through our program and, and came in from the Effective Altruism Movement. Uh, they both had backgrounds in kind of uh, getting stuff done, consulting and for-profit entrepreneurship. And one of the biggest characteristics that we notice is this trait of just being able to get a huge amount of stuff done. So sometimes maybe you have a three-hour deadline, and some people are able to do something that looks like it took them 10 hours. Other people are able to do something that looks like it took them one hour. Um, you need to be on the higher end of that spectrum. Otherwise, your charity will move slow. It will, it will eventually stagnate, and it will be hard for it to compete. Uh, those kind of speed characteristics multiply out to your charity, and that's why both these charities have done more in a couple of years than many charities would do in a decade. So before we talk about the next characteristic, I want you to think about uh, this experiment. Uh, the candle the wall on the table. Uh, you're basically given a test of, can you please stick the candle to the wall so that it does not drip wax uh, on the table? Uh, now, I'll give you a couple seconds to think about possible solutions. And if you've seen this before, think of more possible solutions. So a few that immediately come to mind is maybe you can take the tacks out and try to tack the candle. Uh, that doesn't work. Candle's too heavy. Sorry. Um, Another possibility is maybe you can uh, use the candle, uh, melt the candle a little bit and try to weld it uh, to the wall. Also a good idea, but it doesn't work. Um, the trick to this is uh, thinking outside of the objects. So thinking outside of the box, uh, in fact, literally in this case, taking the tacks out of the box, using the box as an object which you tack to the wall, putting the candle on top. Um, so that's the actual solution. Now, some of you might have heard that creativity exercise, and I want to ask, did you actually think of more creative solutions? 
Uh, did you think outside of the box box, if you'd already heard of this one? Uh, what about throwing the table outside of the room altogether? What about thinking about whether you can uh, attach uh, the candle to the box in a precarious balancing way, such that the wax is redirected along the, the cardboard uh, to drip off the table? There's lots of other solutions to a problem, and often with charity entrepreneurship, you have to come up with really creative solutions. Uh, there's not going to be a really strict pathway that you can follow. There's going to be all sorts of deviations and, and, and different uh, challenges that will come up that you'll have to creatively overcome. Let's talk about a couple of them. Uh, so Family Empowerment Media basically does uh, radio messaging for health messaging, particularly family uh, planning messaging. And they had a challenge, which is with radio messaging, it's very, very hard to do randomized control trials because it goes out to so many people, you have to randomize on a village level, typically, which means you just need massive sample sizes. Uh, you know, you need tens of tens of villages to, to get power. Um, but there was a recent technology about blocking, which allowed you to block uh, radio signals from certain positions as long as you put it up in, a, in the right household. You could block the radio um, and you could replace uh, one ad with another ad. So say an ad for uh, family planning with an ad that's irrelevant to that and see what the difference is. Uh, this sort of solution uh, saved not only hundreds of thousands of dollars in possible testing, but allowed more rapid testing to be done so that they could test messaging on a smaller level and, and randomize even what people got different messages on a more individual level. Uh, this sort of thing would be a really easy solution for a charitable organization to miss, uh, but Family Empowerment Media caught. Um, or what about Killian? Uh, working on a meta-charitable organization, so approaching the problem of uh, how to do good from a completely different angle. Obviously, meta-charities are, are common in our world, but thinking about how to actually set up programs such that maybe they give people what they need psychologically as well as uh, literally. Uh, one thing that was recently run by Training for Good was a workshop on how to uh, do better and earn to give jobs. And part of the benefit was the confidence gain of people who went to the workshop who felt like they were worthy of asking for a salary promotion or, or kind of negotiating with their boss. Uh, this can be a really huge benefit and often the best benefits of your organization might be a little bit to the right, a little bit outside of the box. Let's next talk about goal orientation. Uh, this is also super important and incredibly consistent across the best charities. Uh, it's hard to be good at something. It's very hard to be good at a lot of things. Uh, you really need your charitable organization to be uh, very, very focused and very, very good at what it does. So uh, let's talk about Savita. Savita had a challenge right at the beginning of their existence where they merged with another charitable organization uh, doing similar sorts of activities. Typically, this can throw a charity off their groove. It can get them uh, dis dis disorganized and spread across uh, a dozen projects. But they were able to narrow down their scope until they were just working on their core mission. And they were able to pull that scope through, even COVID times. Similarly with Animal Ask, uh, this is an organization that works with uh, animal organizations uh, in the kind of broader animal movement about what is the most important thing to, to work on. What is the most important thing to do a corporate ask for, for example? Or what's the most important thing to ask a government to do? Um, of course, hundreds of organizations contact them and, and try to get their help, but thinking about who's actually going to cause the most impact, not necessarily who's just going to look the, the best on their web page or this sort of thing, uh, it was really important and required a high level of uh, kind of results orientation to be at. So one thing I want to mention here is we mentioned all these traits, uh, but really nobody is a perfect fit. Uh, all the charity entrepreneurs I showed uh, before have some examples of these traits and have some characteristics here, but they don't have all of them. They're not a 10 out of 10 on every ranking. Um, I want you to actually think through right now yourself uh, and even talk to the, the table next to you about what of these areas you might score well on or, or poorly on, which of these areas uh, you might score overall, how you might rank yourself uh, on these sort of characteristics. Again, I'll give you 30 seconds.
Okay, perfect. Sorry again, I know it's not nearly enough time to actually discuss your characteristics. Um, but it starts to give you a sense. Uh, I want you to now think about uh, kind of, yeah, how good you are. I want you to think about what your colleagues and friends might say. Because sometimes I notice a really big difference uh, in what charity entrepreneurs might rank themselves on these sort of characteristics versus what friends and colleagues might rank them on these sort of characteristics. Sometimes it's different in a positive way. In fact, often it's different in a positive way with people undervaluing their capacities relative to the people who know them. Imposter syndrome is really rampant in both charity entrepreneurship and the EA movement. So it's really important to think about not just how great a fit you think you are, but how great a fit other people might uh, categorize you as or think of you as. So I said I'd swing back to kind of the limiting factor of charitable organizations. We talked about funding a little bit. Uh, there is a broad range of ideas. Uh, the limiting factor really is uh, you, the founder, the person who is going to get this charity off the ground or not. Typically, when we're looking at our year of, of program applicants or, or our year of ideas or thinking about how the heck will we scale this to have 10 charities a year instead of five charities a year, uh, co-founder limitations are the biggest factor. Now, a little bit about track record so that I can give you a little bit of confidence that charity entrepreneurship does work uh, even for people who are in a very similar range. Uh, we have founded a whole bunch of charitable organizations at this point, uh, 18 across a wide range of cause areas, so five different cause areas. Um, and they've grown every year in terms of the size of the organizations. We've given over a million dollars of grants to these different organizations, and they've combined to save an incredible number of lives and, and done an incredible amount of good, uh, save helping millions of people, helping millions of animals uh, across these sort of things. And this really is just the beginning. Our charity entrepreneurship program gets better every year, and our founders' charities get bigger every year, more successful and better at what they do. So it is a, a difficult path. It is not the most straightforward thing. Um, and there are challenges that, that are real and that people should think about. You know, Not every uh, minute of charity entrepreneurship is doing the most glamorous thing. It's not very comfortable. It's not sitting in, in a hammock uh, doing uh, kind of philosophical research the whole time. Uh, a lot of it is uh, trying to figure out how to get your damn internet connection to work in northern Nigeria as the hotel is uh, heating up slowly because the air conditioner is broken. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, kind of mixed things that you have to do, and that can be a strength uh, or a weakness. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the support that we can offer. Uh, so Charity Entrepreneurship, the career path is very exciting, and Charity Entrepreneurship, the org, is built around trying to make it easier to found charities. We don't want something like a small amount of funding, or not being able to find a great co-founder, or being, uh, having difficulty registering to stop a fantastic org from coming into existence. So let's talk briefly about how it works. Um, step one is applying to the program. And this is a really important one, and we often encourage everybody to apply because we spend quite a lot of time thinking about our application process and how to actually assess out both the best founders and make it valuable for people going through the process themselves. We don't want 10,000 people to fill out an application process that isn't valuable or doesn't cause impact uh, for them. We want to think about how to utilize each hour. So as you're going through our application process, it's also testing out uh, your sense of whether you would want to do charity entrepreneurship. It's doing tasks that are very similar to the sort of challenges that you would encounter as a charity founder. And that's by design. It, of course, gives you a sense of what that path is and, and us a sense of what your abilities on that path would be. Now, if you get into the program, uh, the step two is preparing. We send out a fully written handbook, which uh, kind of covers all the key things, and there's a weekly meeting of book clubs to get to know your co-founders over the course of a couple months. Uh, that's getting ready for the, the intense summer program. Um, step three is going through a two-month training program where we try to teach everything possible while simultaneously giving you a sense of different ideas and different co-founders. 
this program is much more like a boot camp uh, than an academic uh, kind of uh, degree. It's quite intense, uh, but it teaches you a lot of the valuable skills. And it means that whenever you do things over the next year, uh, they'll all come as familiar or things that you've done a couple times before. Throughout the program, you might practice something three or four times before you have to do it for real with your charitable organization, with your final co-founder. There'll also be a lot of co-founder matching uh, as this process goes on. Eventually, you'll kind of nail down and select uh, both a co-founder and a charity idea. When we look at the content that a charity entrepreneur needs, it's pretty diverse, and we try to teach a wide range of it, anything from pretty pragmatic stuff like logistical aspects to measurement and evaluation to trying to gather support. One of the ways we split up the content and think about kind of the key skills of charity entrepreneurs is thinking about the four big decisions and the three fuels. So these are the four big decisions that will impact significantly your charity's underlying impact. Uh, your career area, whether you do charity entrepreneurship or not. Your charity idea, what intervention and cause area you pick. Your co-founder, of course, your partner in crime and the person you're going to be spending a lot of time with. Uh, and finally, your country of execution. Uh, each of these four decisions we spend a bunch of time on throughout the program and kind of model out different possibilities and, and talk both with us and with external advisors about what the most impactful plan will eventually be. We also talk about how to get support for your charitable organization. Uh, wealth, so what are the pathways to funding and, and, and what grant makers to approach or what grant makers we can connect you with. Uh, wisdom, how to get advisors on your board or how to hire the right sort of people who will guide your charity and, and how to make decisions in that way. Uh, and work, uh, similar to wealth, uh, finding talent for your charitable organization is actually a huge challenge and a really difficult thing to do, uh, but highly important. It can make the difference between your charity being fantastic versus mediocre. Uh, after you go through the program, uh, we don't just uh, kind of kick you to the curb and uh, leave you there. We try to give continuous support uh, for the first year. So that's uh, kind of notably a seed grant, uh, but also all sorts of logistical support, mentorship support, connections to, to the broader community and to cause area communities when we've done research in it. Uh, we'll even make a cup of hot cocoa and reconcile you through a plan B reevaluation if your charity doesn't work. Um, we really do want to de-risk this option as much as possible and make it as easy as possible for people of kind of all backgrounds and, and all uh, kind of financial abilities to be able to go through a program like this and found a fantastic charity. So uh, the final kind of uh, call is we really think that founding charities are impactful and we really think that a huge percentage of people uh, who will found fantastic charities uh, might be in this room right now. So please do consider it as an option. And as your next steps, uh, you can take a quiz that we've recently set up. Um, it's, it's OK. It gives you a sense. It's don't take it too literally. Uh, it's not going to predetermine your destiny. But it can give you a few of the questions that might come up and, and give you a, a bit of frame to think about in terms of what are the things that might be important or not to a charity entrepreneur. Um, or even better yet, uh, sign up for the application process. Try going through it. We're always happy to have more applications. It doesn't feel like a waste of our time at all. At worst, we talk to someone who's really excited about an impactful career path, and we can help them along that path. Uh, and at best, uh, we are really excited to find charity entrepreneurs who often uh, rule themselves out too early. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joey, for that talk. Um, we now, with the remaining sort of 25 minutes, will do a Q&A with both Joey and Nikita. Uh, remember, if you have questions for either of them, do submit them on the Swapcard app and upvote your favorites as well. Um, I would just like to introduce uh, Nikita. You heard a bit about her in that talk. Uh, she is the co-founder and CEO of Fortify Health, a flower fortification initiative based in India. 
Nikita and her co-founder Brendan launched Fortify Health in 2017 with a seed grant and support from what uh, has become Charity Entrepreneurship. Since then, Fortify Health has received two GiveWell incubation grants to scale up its work. Please welcome Nikita. Um, so just to start off with, I don't know if you could tell us, Nikita, a bit about your journey into, uh, into co-founding um, Fortify Health. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I worked at Malaria Consortium, um, which a lot of you will have heard of, for about a year. Um, and I came across this Facebook post um, by someone called Brendan. Um, he was interested in starting a charity. I think he'd actually approached Joey to work for Charity Science, and Joey had indicated that perhaps he should look into Well, he wanted to <laughs> start it as a department instead of a separate organization. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically from there, um, I got in touch with him. I said uh, I felt like I was underqualified, so I kind of just wanted to ask him some questions about how he'd got to this point of view. Um, and then when I actually spoke to him, he, he said, um, yeah, go for it, apply, see how it goes. Um, and from there, we ended up kind of discussing more, um, got the position of co-founder, and um, that was actually the point where we spent a lot of time trying to decide whether this was the right thing to do at the stage in our careers. Um, we were both quite early in our careers, and it, it wasn't clear at that point if this was, um, especially as it was before charity entrepreneurship existed, mm -hmm. whether this made the most sense. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of gone from there. Great. Um, so you talked about how you had previously worked in nonprofits, um, and Joey, you mentioned the sort of like how much experience kind of question beforehand. We've had uh, one question here about how much prior work experience should one ideally have before starting a charity. Uh, Joey, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if you could start three or four charities and they could fail, um, and then you could start the fifth one, that would be perfect. <laughs> but uh, realistically, so sooner is better. So. You can say, okay, you know, having some sort of experience at a small NGO, that's very valuable. Having some sort of experience at an NGO that teaches you some skill sets, that's very valuable. Having some experience in entrepreneurship broadly or, or leading projects, even if they're not straight entrepreneurial, you know, whether that's an EA chapter or whatever it may be, uh, that's valuable. But a, a lot of the skills you, you will just have to learn uh, as you go through the process. You know, it's like, okay, one person might come in with 92 skills, um, and or sorry, one person might come in with eight skills, one person might come in with two skills, but you need 100. Uh, so you're still gonna be acquiring 90 of those skills in, in all cases, so uh, yeah, sooner the better, um, but there are some things that can help. Uh, coming in later in your career is definitely also an option, and, and there are some benefits of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, were there things that you uh, learned particularly from the experience of, of doing the sort of charity entrepreneurship, Nikita? Yeah, I think, I think in terms of the role itself, um, I had imagined being a co-founder would involve doing a lot of the things yourself. Um, but one of the things that surprised me was um, a lot of my role is actually bringing people in to do the great work. And, and I'm just kind of a facilitator of discussion, um, someone who listens and synthesizes information um, and tries to guide decision making through that, but actually not really um, the person doing all the models and yeah, kind of digging in deep. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, what's the split of sort of uh, responsibility between like you and a co-founder and sort of how did you get that kind of uh, division of responsibility? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, Brendan, who was um, uh, a co-founder and he's actually left now, but um, we were actually quite opposite in a lot of ways, which worked really well. So Brendan um, was quite quantitatively skilled, um, very confident, very decisive. Um, I was quite the opposite, I'm quite introverted, um, um, quite cautious, uh, but really enjoy interacting with people. So I think it was quite a, an obvious split where he would work on a lot of um, kind of the scale-up models and um, the selection sheets for different countries and states. 
um, whereas I kind of did more of the hiring and people skills type work. And so that's kind of how we divide. And it's continued that way with our country director, who's brilliant at a lot of those um, kind of digging deeper type tasks. And kept the organization focused. You've got to have someone who's a force <laughs> of focus, mm -hmm. not entrepreneurs. Makes sense. And um, we've also had a question a bit around the sort of finances and uh, like how sustainable that is and the salary that you can get. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of how competitive this feels from a salary perspective to other things that you could do and sort of how you deal with, I guess, some of that uncertainty around funding. Yeah, Ooh. I can cover it. Uh, not that competitive. <laughs> <laughs> like most people who are talented enough to found a really effective charity, you know, their, their net expected income in the for-profit world or something, uh, you know, would be higher. Uh, there, there are pathways that have that benefits. I think you have to think about every job as kind of this portfolio of benefits. Um, and there's pros and cons of every job. Uh, salary will probably not be the big pro of charity entrepreneurship. Um, but there will be other benefits, you know, working with a community that's really value aligned, that you really care about, working on work that really matters. Um, so I think that uh, it's not uh, so low to the point where uh, it rules out uh, a lot of people, but it, it is low to the point where it, it definitely won't be competing with uh, other top jobs that would be uh, available for someone who's similarly talented. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I agree with Joe for the most part. Um, I think I am someone who actually is quite financially anxious. so. Um, this was, this has been one of the main points for me where I have been a bit nervous at times um, about the sustainability of this role for me. Um, but actually, I think as you grow and scale, um, and I think, it, yeah, I mean, I mean, salaries increase. They're obviously never going to be um, kind of corporate level, but I think we are growing to that point where we're able to offer actually like relatively competitive salaries. Um, and I feel like in the charity entrepreneurship space, it is important to be able to offer those just because. Otherwise, we're filtering out a lot of people who um, maybe actually bring a lot to this kind of mindset and the kind of, I guess, more more like personal experience in this. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I, I think um, it's important we don't filter these people out as well. So it's a, it's a hard balance to find for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to switch to questions that are a bit more around the sort of the strategies around picking charities and, and going and incubation. Um, so I don't know if you want to just briefly talk a bit, Joey, about the work that charity entrepreneurship does first in the sort of research before the incubation program. Yes. Uh, so super briefly, uh, we do a research process. It's kind of iterative. We start with a cause area, brainstorm ideas, narrow them down through kind of successive levels of research to fewer and fewer ideas that get deeper and deeper analysis until there's kind of a top list of promising ideas from an entrepreneurial perspective. Uh, so notice this is quite different from promising areas from a funder perspective. We're actually looking for areas where there aren't pre-existing charities that are you know, extremely cost-effective or extremely evidence-based, but the intervention area as a whole uh, has promise uh, to kind of become that way. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do, and we do have a top list. Some people apply uh, with the idea that they'll start something on that top list. Some people apply with the idea that they'll start their own uh, idea that they apply with. Some people uh, are open to both. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that uh, historically, most of the cause areas have been focused around sort of helping people nowadays and sort of a global health uh, perspective or sort of animals. And this year was the first time that you branched out into sort of more meta charities. And um, what kind of prompted that change? Correct. So meta charities were always interesting to us. Um, our team had had some experience working with meta charities, and of course, charity entrepreneurship itself is a meta charity. Uh, we really wanted to prove the model in ways that were very clearly demonstrable and high impact uh, before branching out into stuff that was a bit softer and a bit uh, weaker in feedback loops. So, stuff like the animal and global poverty stuff, you know, obviously for something like global health, you know, there's a really great charity evaluator out there, GiveWell, that you can kind of see uh, if your charity uh, kind of is promising. 
Um, and the same is true in the animal space, you know, with, with sort of evaluators there. So that's why the, the meta move now, in terms of now we have a bit more confidence that the model has uh, kind of spit out some promising charities in different cause areas. Uh, we've also done mental health and family planning as cause areas. So we, we have done, I guess, five cause areas uh, over time. And there is quite a bit of benefit in rotating cause areas because, of course, there's a limited founder pool in each, in each area and there's a limited idea pool in each idea. So that's been part of the uh, emphasis with cause rotation. Mm -hmm. And Nikita, when you sort of came in, was, it, was there something specific about the sort of Fortify, Fortify Health's approach that particularly appealed to you? Um, so we actually came in with four different options um, to consider, and one of them happened to be fortification. So we, we yeah, it was a list. Um, and out of those four options, fortification seemed the most feasible, the least potentially politically um, like, tricky. Um, and so from there, it was more of a case of figuring out which countries we could work in. Um, and then we didn't even have a food vehicle at the time. So um, we kind of then went through the process of kind of, should we focus on rice? flour, there's also um, kind of oil and milk fortification, which have an, a, a whole different set of vitamins that, that are used to fortify those. Um, and so that was kind of the process from there. Um, we didn't really have a model from right from scratch. It kind of evolved as we did more, built more models to figure out the next step. Mm -hmm. yeah. One point on that too is I think people imagine that you like kind of select your charity idea and then it's like a done, like you kind of like close the package on that. But there's subversions and, and modifications. You're, you're making strategic decisions for probably the first five years of your organization realistically. Um, so even if you pick a broad area like, okay, cool, I'm interested in fortification. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there's about a thousand things that one could do in fortification or even flower fortification. There's different mechanisms that can be done for flower fortification. So there are still a lot of strategic calls that need to be made in the first mm -hmm. year in terms of actually fleshing out a model. That is a really long period of time if it's like sort of on the scale of like five years, as you say, about continuing to make a bunch of strategic decisions. Um, you have, have you found that process? Um, how, is it, how has it gone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're four years in, so hopefully we're, <laughs> we're coming towards the end of that. But um, yeah, there's definitely times where, um, I mean, I think we've always been set on flower fortification, but obviously things can cause you to reconsider at times. Um, I mean, for us, cost effectiveness is, is quite a big part of our work and flower fortification definitely seems the most cost effective. But even in terms of how we scale up, so we're, we're at a juncture right now where we're actually figuring out how will our next three years look? We're planning to scale. Um, what things do we need to change in our model? Um, how can we speed up different aspects of the model? And that brings in a whole bunch of other changes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, big changes ahead. Yeah, okay. potentially. Um, so we've had a question about uh, yeah, a potential tension when you're trying to do effective uh, charities. So uh, the question is that sort of startups tend to have a fail fast ethos, whereas EA wants to ensure that what we do is actually effective, which tends to push in the direction of researching interventions. How do you kind of reconcile those two differences in approach? Yeah, so I would say you want to research it to narrow it down to good guesses. Um, but you will still need to test the model in a way that is falsifiable and that will show up. So even if you know CE does a bunch of upfront research and we you know collaborate with Gibwell and we come up with this kind of like list of promising things, uh, th those are not all guaranteed hits. Uh, some of them, an RCT will come back three months later that shows that it's not promising, or the model will be tested out, but it won't work in one context uh, versus another. So you want to use a heavy-handed research-based approach uh, when generating your kind of top options, but eventually you do just have to uh, take a guess with it. Uh, and I think this is a similar thing in, in the 
for-profit world. You know, you want to have something that's, that's a good guess, but th there will be some variance uh, in that. And in terms of the failing fast, I, I love that ethos. I think it's really important for charity entrepreneurs to, to have that as well as for-profit entrepreneurs because, you know, if you're fundraising, you're taking money from some other charitable cause, right? And you want to make sure that you're actually having an impact and actually causing good to happen in the world. And you don't want to waste uh, your time as a valuable co-founder, you know, doing something that ultimately isn't having the greatest impact. So. Yeah, you mentioned uh, for-profit uh, sort of startups, and also I know one of your one of your founders from the most recent program has a background in in for-profit startups. And um, have you thought that much about the sort of the pros and cons of setting up organisations in a non-profit or a for-profit model when you're thinking about impact? Yeah, yeah, we definitely have. We we even have we've run an event before on talking about social enterprise versus for-profit enterprise versus non-profit. You know, obviously our, our focus is uh, kind of charities and, and the non-profit world. Uh, why we ended up going that way is to do with uh, focusing more directly on the impact. So obviously when you're going for something like for-profit, you can achieve skills that are at very different levels than non-profits. Uh, but even if you're picking a for-profit that has some like distributed positive impact, uh, it's gonna be very, very minor. Uh, so if you were to kind of look at a for-profit, uh, say you could get a effective charity to $10 million a year, and you could get a for-profit to $100 million a year, that for-profit has to be kind of one-tenth as good, uh, plus or minus the donations that you make on a personal side from like stock options or that sort of thing uh, as the charity. And that's actually like quite hard to do. So there is some promising avenues in for-profit in terms of uh, earning a bunch of income and then donating it to charities plus your for-profit having like some minor economic benefits or something like this. But on like a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis, even with the increased scale from for-profits, uh, it's very, very tough uh, to compete. Uh, social enterprise runs into a, a similar dilemma where it's very hard to maximize two bottom lines if you're trying to have an impact and simultaneously uh, trying to do the most good. It's just, it's very, very tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, you mentioned that some of the charities that have gone through charity entrepreneurship have ended up like uh, not continuing or, or um, are there any particular lessons that have been learned from the charities that sort of failed through the program? Yeah, so the, the main reason won't come as a shock to anyone, it's, it's co-founder uh, stuff. So co-founders who, who couldn't find agreement on certain issues or, or couldn't work together effectively or move too slow or this sort of thing. So the co-founder pairing thing is super important. I think we make it more important every single year in our program in terms of how much time people spend talking with each other, how much time they spend working with each other and that sort of thing. So that's been the biggest pattern. Uh, there definitely is a move fast enough not to fall over, uh, kind of like bicycling. If your charity ends up going uh, too slow, it, it, it does get harder to kind of gather support, gather momentum. People don't want to join your charity as staff, that sort of thing. So some charities uh, end up going slow, but almost all of it derives back to, to some sort of co-founder challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that seems quite astonishing about charity entrepreneurship is that you're able to sort of match people. It does seem like this is a huge investment working with this person. You're going to be like your best, your highs and your lows are going to be really shared with this person. And maybe you haven't uh, spent that much time with them before. That seems like a pretty intense thing. I'm quite impressed that it ever works in, in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of how that went compared to how you, how you were expecting. Yeah, I think I wasn't aware how important it was at the beginning. So um, if I had known, I probably would have done more research. Um, but we were very lucky in that we, we actually worked really well together. But before I actually met Brendan in person, um, to start Fortify Health, we, we had spoken, I think, like three times or four times on Skype. Mm -hmm. um, so that, looking back, that's quite risky. Um, whereas now, I feel, yeah, I feel like there's a much more robust process in place. And that's, yeah, I, I feel like there has been a, a lot of um, work done on that. So. Yeah, nowadays, it's, it's, it's very heavy. I mean, obviously, there's a huge filtration process to get the top 20 people in the program. So they're already kind of like very altruistic people, very talented in lots of ways, very entrepreneurial. They're, they're, they really want to be there, the people who are in the program. So that helps. Uh, but then the other thing is just working together with the person a lot. 
So throughout the first month and even a little bit in the pre-program as people are doing the book clubs and, and that sort of thing, it's just putting in the hours with that co-founder. How does this person work together with me on an analytical project? How do they work together with me on a soft skill project? How do they work together with me when I'm having a bad day? Uh, that sort of thing, it's, it's hard to, to get that feel without just working with them a lot. So our process is uh, iterative, as is our research, where you'll start by working with a lot of co-founders and then each week people fill out the forms about who they're matching well with, who they're not, what projects they think they performed well on, what projects they didn't, and then slowly that will kind of narrow down until you're working more and more projects with fewer and fewer co-founders. So it's a bit of a gradual process. It's not like you're kind of uh, mingling with everybody and then all of a sudden you have to you know, get married the next day. Uh, there's kind of this, this uh, iterative narrowing down of you do more projects and you end up doing, I guess, 11 projects, I think, something like that uh, with your top two or three co-founders. So you, you end up getting quite a lot of exposure to them in different scenarios and this is over the course of you know, a month and a half. So. Uh, that. And then there's also a trial period of the first month of the program where you're, you're kind of working on the idea with the co-founder, but there's still some room to rotate as other people are going through it. And yeah, so a lot better, a lot less misses, I think, over time as we've increased the kind of uh, strength of the co-founder pairing and the amount of time, but uh, still tough, still tough, even, even, even with all that. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked a bit about lessons from the, the charities that didn't make it. And Nikita, I'm just wondering about what are your kind of greatest lessons that you've learned over the last four years or advice you'd give yourself four years ago? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think one of them I mentioned, which is that my role actually isn't to do a lot of the stuff, um, a lot of like the groundwork and yeah, I guess the, the building of models. Um, I think in terms of our, our work itself, um, I think one thing I was surprised that just this is very specific to our actual um, organization is that actually um, so we work a lot with mills um, we thought it could be hard to build relationships with mills but actually that hasn't been the problem the problem has been getting to the point where we can actually launch fortification in those mills and so there's a whole there's a whole process in between signing a partnership and getting to that point which um, has a bunch of bottlenecks and so part of our, our pain points now and like troubleshooting is around this problem um, Sorry, the question was around lessons, right? Yes. Yes, yes. okay. <laughs> um, I think in terms of um, personal fit, um, I think I'm surprised at how, like kind of, Joey, what, what you mentioned about personality differences, um, that there really is space for people who are sort of introverted and quiet um, as co-founders, and it's not, um, like, like four years ago, I would have never, ever agreed to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, present or, or talk at EA Global. So I think, um, I, think, I think basically having space for those people to grow and to be able to input, I think there's different types of skills that people bring and those like being able to actively listen is a skill um, that I didn't really value before, but actually now, now I've realized it's actually quite useful. So great, that sounds great. Yeah, people have the tendency of whatever skill they have to kind of think that that skill is easy and everyone has that. Um, but often that's not the case at all, <laughs> and it actually is like a, a super valuable competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, a couple last questions on uh, yeah, how charity um, incubators is thinking about how you're sort of how you're thinking about different uh, charities to incubate. Um, so I guess uh, one question here from: Are you looking to incubate long-termist charities, for example, in the AI biosecurity or extra space? And if not, why not that? Yeah, so there actually was a, a long-termist incubator. Uh, there's a post about it on the EA forum that kind of set up there. Uh, we are not as sympathetic uh, to long-termist causes, uh, not because of kind of ethical reasons. We think long-termist uh, kind of people matter morally, uh, but because of epistemic reasons. Uh, so to do with evidence base and feedback loops and what are the tractable approaches uh, to do with that. There are a whole whack ton of challenges uh, specifically uh, to kind of uh, long-termist causes and, and entrepreneurship in that space that I think are covered like pretty well in that post by the, by the other organization that 
uh, attempted an experiment in that. But broadly, it's because uh, we don't think it's the most impactful thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely recommend people checking out that post, which is like really interesting about the experience that they had. Uh, also doing some sort of pilot incubator program is one of the things. Um, and then lastly, yeah, do you have a sense of uh, whether or why founding a charity sort of right now in the, in the sort of current situation, like thinking about the state of EA and that kind of thing, uh, is there a reason why uh, founding a charity is particularly impactful right now as opposed to working on more typical kind of cause areas or career paths? Yeah, so there's a consideration called the haste consideration, which some EAs have heard about, which is basically the multiplying effect of doing something impactful and then that becoming bigger and bigger. So I think sometimes people imagine that, oh, I'll be you know slightly better resourced or slightly more skilled uh, three years from now to, to found a charity, for example. But if you think about where your charity would be if it was founded now and had three years to run and test out experiments and to build the capacities there, it'd be way superseding what you'd get from gaining kind of three years of experience in some other career path. So. In general, I, I do lean uh, the sooner the better as, as long as you, you, know, you do have the confidence, you have the co-founder fit, you can find an idea and that sort of thing. But also uniquely good opportunity. I mean, obviously, we have a big incubation program. You know, that, that's, that's a really unique opportunity. There's funding availability for these sort of early stage charitable projects that you know, come in with a level of ambition. Uh, that's a really big opportunity. There's ideas out there that are both very, very promising and kind of evidence-based and cost-effective and not done. Um, so, uh, I don't think that the field will always be, you know, as ripe for charity entrepreneurship as it is uh, right now necessarily. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And then, any closing thoughts uh, for someone who's uh, listening to this and is is sort of on the fence about whether they should they should go for this or whether they should apply for charity entrepreneurship? Uh, yeah. Any thoughts? Ooh. Um, I think. I mean, I'm happy to chat to anyone for a start in person if you want to um, kind of get more sense of if you think you'll be a good fit. Um, I think what kind of Joey mentioned is really figure out what your strengths are um, and if you feel, I don't know, that they're, they're, like a few of the ones on there, I think co-founder pairing is super important. So if you feel you're lacking in some, um, then obviously like the, the goal is to find a co-founder who will work with you. Uh, and so I think not to, not to be disheartened if you feel that, say up two out of those, those five, um, five traits you mentioned, um, you're, you're stronger on, but not the other three. Yeah, and uh, iterate that. I mean, err on the side of applying, even if you're uncertain. Uh, I really encourage people to do that. Uh, a lot of people are surprised uh, that, they, that they get in. They were surprised that they were a good fit for charity entrepreneurship. Uh, that happens all the time. Um, and yeah, talk to entrepreneurs. So you know, obviously, you're welcome to talk to us as an organization, but really, no one has a better sense than people who have gone through the program, you know, where they were at before, what the program gave them that was valuable or, or not, uh, and where they're at afterwards. I think that uh, that's incredibly useful. There's a lot of entrepreneurs around. They're wearing like a red, a red ribbon, uh, so mm -hmm. you can kind of track them down in the crowd. Um, and they're always happy to, to talk to people who are considering as a career path and kind of share their particular experience. Fantastic. Okay, um, can you all join me in thanking uh, both uh, Nikita and Joey for a fantastic Q&A today? <laughs> <laughs>